Thanks, Keith. Thanks, everyone. Um, time's not against me, uh, but even though it's not, I am going to need my little clock uh, so that I don't go beyond the time here. There we go. Stopwatch has started. There's, a, there's great irony in the fact that I have a stopwatch. You'll find out why in a moment. All right, so as, as uh, Keith had mentioned, I, I, did my, I did my master's program, which I think more than anything showed me that I, how, much I, how little I know about a lot of stuff. Um, and when you know there's more stuff to know, you realize how little of it you actually know. Um, but I'm really privileged to be up here um, speaking to you this morning. And actually, uh, Keith, you basically, you basically did, my, you, you did my first page already in the introduction. Um, so you know who I am. Uh, you know life's been a little bit busy here. Um, time is not against me has been sort of the, my mantra for the past year. I've repeated it to myself ad nauseum as I finish up my work at Regent College. And the good news is, as Keith mentioned, it's done. I'm really excited about that. The better news is that Ruth Ellen didn't leave me. Probably the best news is that God actually showed up through the process. And it's a process that took a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, I began my studies in 2010, and I thought I was just going to do sort of a quick in and out, two years, be done by 2012. Um, but this position at Trinity Western opened up, and it felt like a good fit. So I accepted that and continued to sort of work my way uh, toward my thesis work. Um, and as much as I wanted to breathe a sigh of relief as soon as that February performance was done, I could only sort of exhale a little bit, and then I had to start jogging again. Um, you know, baby on the way, absolutely. March is the busiest month in, in my job at, at Trinity, and my sort of default response since January at work had been, I'll do it in March, because I needed to get my thesis work done. So it's been a full, full time, and uh, so Ruth Ellen and I have gotten pretty busy, uh, no pun intended. And now, busyness is all, is all relative, though, isn't it? Like, um, Brad was just mentioning that there was a McLean's article that came out earlier this week saying that we actually have more discretionary time in 2014 than basically ever in the history of humanity, which, thanks for saying that, Brad, that makes me feel great uh, this morning. Um, but, you know, you probably all have stories of busyness that exceed mine, and that's okay. It's not a contest, and even if it was, uh, the moms out there would probably win anyways. Uh, so... <laughs> In the midst of all this busyness, I've had to relearn something again and again and again. And it's this. Time, despite all our feelings of not having enough of it, is actually part of God's good creation. And it's a sacred context in which God uh, does his work of new creation in us. Uh, it's the context in which we're made holy. And this isn't to say that, that busyness is good. Actually, busyness can sort of be a vice. We all know that. But time itself is a wonderful gift. And I think we need to hear that again and again. I think that's one of the reasons why Sabbath, why, why uh, gathering together as a faith community is so important. So I have difficulty believing time is good, um, which is true about a lot of basic truths about life with God, isn't it? We, we want to believe them, but like the, uh, like the father whose child uh, is demon-possessed and he wants him to be healed by Jesus in Mark 9, he says this, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. We can relate to that a lot of the time, I think. And I think you can also tell a lot about what a person struggles with based on what they're actually really passionate about or what they try to correct in others. So I want you to hear this first uh, before I get going here. I fight time all the time. Um, I, I'm too busy. I allow my self-worth to be dictated by what I do 
rather than who I am becoming. Um, I'm, I'm actually a really impatient person. I elevate tasks over people a lot of the time. I'm concerned with goal setting to the extent that I fail to honor the present moment and I'm always living 10 steps ahead of where I am right now. I can't stand being interrupted or having my schedule go sideways. And in the midst of all this, I'm still chronically late for stuff. Um, and I'm looking forward to this eight-week window between Masters being done and Ruth Ellen popping where I may actually be able to be on time to some family gatherings, but we'll see. So when it comes to time, I feel like I'm at a constant deficit, and I would really like to blame clocks for this sickness. Day planners, syllabi, alarms, meeting requests, smartphone to-do lists. All these, all these tools seem benign and maybe even helpful to a degree, but I think they've contributed to my anxiety a little bit. Um, for example, does checking my email when I pee really make me more whole as a person? I don't think so. Uh, does the soft glow of my iPhone really need to be the last thing I see before my head hits the pillow? Probably not. So why do I often live in light of tomorrow or the weekend instead of living in light of eternity? Well, Neil Postman, he's an educator and a, I'd almost say a modern-day prophet of sorts. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he says this, the clock has made us into, go ahead, Eric, timekeepers, sa- time then time savers, and now time servers. And with the invention of the clock, eternity ceased to be the measure and focus for human events. And thus, though few would have imagined the connection, the inexorable ticking of the clock may have had more to do with the weakening of God's supremacy than all the treatises produced by the philosophers of the Enlightenment. Wow. So he's piggybacking off the work of philosopher Lewis Mumford, and his claim is worth exploring a bit. I think it suggests a few things. First, it suggests that many of us struggle with an attitude of scarcity. The problem is not new. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve are given this whole garden to tend. And what does God say? There's that one tree, just just leave that tree alone. And that's the only tree they can think about, isn't it? They don't celebrate what they do have. They grasp after what they don't have. And it leads them to, to disobey God. I think similarly, we're entrusted with time. And often I think about all the time I don't have rather than celebrating what I do have. Second, I think uh, this quote by Postman acknowledges that many of us struggle with an unhealthy desire for control. And as soon as we can measure something, we begin to believe it's in our control. Think of all the metaphors we use to describe time. We invest it, we save it, we spend it, we waste it, we have maybe free time. Um, The problem with thinking of time as an object in this way, though, is we begin to think that it's something that we can manipulate or control or optimize or compress or slow down or speed up or whatever it is. And we forget that God's the one in control, not us. And then thirdly, I think this quote identifies that the things we try to control usually end up controlling us. That's the basic premise of most sci-fi movies, right? Planet of the Apes, 2001, A Space Odyssey, iRobot, choose your campy sci-fi reference. The, the, the point is the same. We erect or we create clocks everywhere so that we can dominate the world by increasing our productivity. And what happens? The clocks take over. And I think the history of clocks actually supports this notion. Did you know that clocks sort of originated in Benedictine monasteries in the 12th and 13th centuries? 
Neil Postman says in his book Technopoly that they were designed to, quote, coordinate the daily rhythms of monastic life. So bells were rung to signal canonical hours of prayer, among other activities. By the middle of the 14th century, the clock had moved outside of the monastery and brought a new precise regularity to the life of the workman and the merchant. The paradox... The surprise and the wonder are that the clock was invented by men who wanted to devote themselves rigorously to God. And it ended as the technology of greatest use to men who wished to devote themselves to the accumulation of money. Time is money. Well, no, it's not. When we make that equivocation, what do we do? We damage our families and our relationships in the process. Or we begin to measure our self-worth in terms of, again, what we produce rather than who we're becoming. And the problem is, I don't know about you, but I can never produce enough, and whatever I produce isn't making me any holier. So perhaps this is why Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4.18 to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So I'm convinced there's got to be a better way for us to live peaceably with time, to to fix our eyes on that which is eternal. And this actually brings me to a very odd book, Ecclesiastes. I think the uh, King Solomon's sort of the emo kid of the Old Testament. Um, I feel like he's probably got an artistic flair and he'd have those crazy bangs if he were alive today. But he wrestles with these tensions between being and doing, between time and eternity, and and he poetically explores themes like the brevity of life and the futility of seeking pleasure and the sovereignty of God. And after a chapter and a half of existential moaning and groaning, Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 2, 20 to 23. He says, I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief, and even at night their minds can't rest. It is all meaningless. Solomon knows what it's like to work day in and day out, only to have somebody else swoop in and take all the credit at the end of the day. He fights the tyranny of the clock, too, and in light of this, he cries out again and again, meaningless, meaningless. I'm like, come on, Solomon, give me a break. You're being a bit melodramatic here, aren't you? Well, I mean, scholars generally categorize Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature, so I think we actually have to take him seriously here. And I think Solomon's expressing deep sadness and grief, absolutely. But his refrain, meaningless, far from just being a cry of despair, even though there's certainly some sadness to the story, is also a call for us to just wake up and come back to our senses. Uh, to acknowledge that apart from God, we can't do anything, and to maybe even embrace our own limitations, to find pleasure and enjoyment in simple activities without always grasping for that which is beyond us. And I think most of all, to trust that God knows what he's doing. And maybe that's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 14, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that they may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him 
Now, is Solomon's attitude here one of fear? Is he basically saying, you know, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die? Or in the lingo of my students, YOLO, you only live once? I don't think so. I, I, think, I think he's actually holding his life and his time up to the light of our eternal God. And he sees something that we can't really afford to miss. And that's, that's this, that God, what God does endures. Actually, only what God does endures. And in one sense, we're not really important to that whole operation anyway. If we mess up or stop on our tracks, the world keeps spinning, the the, the seasons still change, the sparrows still are fed, the lilies are still clothed in radiant white. We don't have to take ourselves so seriously. We need to take God seriously because he's the one who gives our lives and our work meaning. And I think Solomon recognizes this, that we can't reign in time, but we can learn to live within it and delight in even sort of mundane moments. Um, that, that starts to touch on what Brother Lawrence talks about in practicing the presence of God. He's a dishwasher, uh, in a monastery, and, and he had these almost ecstatic experiences of the presence and closeness and intimacy of fellowship with the Lord while he was scrubbing dishes. These moments are gifts. So I can't really blame clocks for my discomfort with time. I've actually got to blame my desire for control. Take my thesis project, for example. So an unwelcome surprise came when I realized I can't write music. That's sort of the point of my project was to write music. Now, I'm not actually kidding here. It's not an understatement. For weeks and weeks on end, and this would have been the fall of 2012, um, I would spend hours every day and like the whole day Saturday sitting down by myself trying to write music. And I thought it can't be that hard. It's really hard. So I'd experiment with chord progressions. I'd, I'd experiment with different forms of poetry. And all I'd end up with was really, really sore fingers, a headache, and probably a bad attitude and a few things to apologize to God for. And, and nothing fit, everything felt forced. Um, but then I just started to think about what my life actually looked like at that period. So since university, I transitioned from being a full-time web designer to a full-time, uh, to a full-time student, to a part-time theology student and a full-time student ministries worker. And everything related to my job and my life at that juncture felt far less quantifiable. I had far less of a sense of control because I couldn't, I couldn't quantify what, what success actually looked like, what constituted a job well done, or, or how did I measure my progress, or when was my music good enough, or how could I ter- determine whether like a conversation with a student had been productive or not. Um, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I wanted to give them surveys at the end of every talk, but I thought that wouldn't work. Um, so both, of, both my schooling and, and my work at Trinity forced me to give up this illusion of control and to instead actually sit patiently and attend to what God was doing moment to moment. And I, I began to learn that there's no shortcut, there's no quick fix to the work of new creation that God's doing in me. Uh, it takes time, and when I vilify time, I actually vilify the context in which God chooses to shape me. When I vilify time, I vilify the context in which God chooses to shape me. Time's not against us. So think back to the Genesis narrative, okay? Uh, Day one, what does God create? Light. He creates light. Absolutely. Light is the day. Darkness is the night. What does he say about day and night? It's good. That's right. Day two, what does he create? 
Yes, sea and sky, you've got it. And what does he say about them? It's good, that's right. Day three, land and vegetation. Good. Yeah, day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and sea creatures. Good, absolutely. Day six, land creatures, man and woman. Good. In fact, all of this is very good, he says. Day seven, what does he create? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, I was hoping you'd say he doesn't. But, you know, he rests, right? He rests. He doesn't create anything. But you're right. He, 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 he models something to us, doesn't he? He does rest. But in Genesis 2, 2 to 3, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished all the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. But then, verse 3 is really important. God blessed the seventh day and did what? He made it holy. Because on that day, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So he made time holy. He created holiness in time. Not just good. He doesn't call time good. He calls time holy. And I think we need to understand this. Um, Jewish theologian Abraham J. Heschel reminds us that in Genesis, the first thing God makes holy is not a thing, but a day, the seventh day, Sabbath. So unlike the pagan religious festivals of the Old Testament, which were often attached to, to seasons or to particular places, Sabbath is actually attached to the creative work of God. It's not to say that things aren't important, but time and again throughout the Old Testament and all of Scripture, what do we find? God cares more about relationships, time, um, uh, the context of relationship building, than he cares about stuff. So, it's a problem for me um, because I'm driven by a thoroughly modern concept of efficiency and productivity. And just yesterday while I was painting my house, I realized I was using the wrong paint on the trim. And thankfully I didn't say any bad words, but I did something like this. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Ruth Ellen, can you please take over? <laughs> And my, and my very pregnant, very generous wife did. Um, and, and she said this. She said, Jared, you need a rest. You need to take a nap. And actually, what I responded in my spirit to that, I, I responded, I like really stiffened up, actually. Like I thought to myself, I'm stressed out of my mind because of all the stuff that I've got to do. And your recommended treatment is to do none of it. Right? So Sabbath rest really does appear to me to be the antithesis of control. It's the exact opposite of being in control. And maybe that's actually the point. Because in time, there are no shortcuts. And Heschel, uh, in his book, The Sabbath, says this, The more we think, the more we realize. We cannot conquer time through space. We can only master time in time. The higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. So I, I faced a sacred moment. I crawled into my bed. I, I napped for two hours. That's unheard of. That just does not happen to me. And by the time I came down, Ruth Ellen had painted like half the downstairs. She's really impressive. Um, <laughs> now, now, work still greeted me when I got up. Okay, I'm under no illusion that the work goes away, but it somehow actually looked different. You know, what does time look like to you? Does it look like an ugly purple monster, slimy tentacles, that they have a stranglehold on your self-worth? 
Maybe it looks like a merciless slave driver who always, always asks everything or demands everything and gives nothing back. Maybe it looks like a work of art on display at a museum, a priceless artifact that only the rich and famous could possibly afford. Or does it look like a sacred gift to be received with joy and with gratitude? Back to Ecclesiastes. In chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God has made everything beautiful for its time, and he has planted eternity in the human heart. St. Augustine puts it this way in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I don't think God's asking you and I to take on tomorrow's troubles. Tomorrow's got plenty of troubles. I think he's asking you and I to be present. Um, Present with him, present with one another. And maybe that's actually part of what becoming holy, becoming new as people actually looks like. So often I think there's stuff I can do for God. What does Solomon say? Only what God does endures. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. And the work that he's actually given me is not to get stuff done for him, but to actually be receptive to the work that he's doing in me. It's all initiated by him. It's all empowered and and fueled by him. It's made effective by him. I'm, I'm not made holy due to my efforts. I'm not made right before God because of what I've done. What I want us to hear today is actually a great uh, comfort and encouragement. Um, We could focus on the busyness of our lives and I could come up with a bunch of time management principles. Um, um, We could work through spreadsheets. We could try to figure out how to minimize the stress in our schedule and all that sort of stuff. There's a place for that, absolutely. But if there's one thing that I I want you to remember uh, from this talk this morning, it's that time is not against you. Eternity is actually not devoid of time. Eternity is just lots and lots and lots and lots of time. It's not static. It's not like relationships are just going to end at that point and we're going to be floating on clouds in stasis. No, we're still going to interact with God. We're going to see him as he is. We're going to we're going to reunite with family members that we have lost. We're going to, we're going to enjoy the, 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 the fruits of productive and, and joyful work. Um, um, toil here has meaning. Toil in heaven in an eternity has meaning as well. Um, it's the process by which we come face to face with God. So I really, really struggled with application uh, this morning because there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this. So I'm going I'm to present a few categories of, of, of people or challenges to you, and I'm just going to invite you to, in a quiet few moments, just ask God to help you answer some of the questions um, that are going to be up on the screen. And then uh, after a few moments, um, I'll pray, and Ron will, uh, and the team will come up and lead us in a song of reflection. So uh, maybe you're busy. You're probably busy. (laughs) Uh, Some of your schedule is dictated to you, uh, depending on your family, your work situation or whatever, but I think some of it's probably self-imposed. And so instead of asking yourself how to become less busy, 
um, what I first invite you to do is ask some of these questions about your busyness. Um, Think of one particular area of busyness. What deep personal needs am I trying to fulfill by being busy in this particular area? What might I lose by giving it up? What might I gain? Maybe you struggle with control. When things are out of your hands, you get anxious or angry or just sluggish and maybe disengaged. I invite you to ask God to help you answer these questions. In what area do I feel especially powerless? How does this feeling of powerlessness affect me internally? And where do I need to see Jesus' power in my life today? Okay, maybe you struggle with being present. You feel sort of internally fragmented, constantly distracted. I invite you to ask God to help you answer these questions. How do I respond to interruptions in my day? How does my use of technology help or hinder me from being present with God and others? Maybe I'll add a third one. In what context do I feel the most focused and why? Maybe you're simply worn out and discouraged and the thought of like actually asking any of these questions right now is just really stressing you out. Don't worry. Maybe you just need to receive some words from Jesus. Um, In John 7, uh, we find Jesus and his disciples celebrating something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was probably one of the most jubilant celebrations in the Jewish year where they recognize that God actually came down and meets among them in the temple, in the, in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And even as they're wandering about, wondering where, when they're going to enter the promised land, um, there's that tent, and, and God promises to dwell with his people. So we find in John 7, Jesus and, disi- and his disciples uh, celebrating the feast. And uh, he says in uh, chapter 7, 37 to 38, on the last day, the climax of the festival... I love it. Their festivals were like weeks long. It was awesome. Uh, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. So I just invite you to reflect in the quiet for a few moments. And then I'll pray a blessing over you. One day, Abraham and Sarah are hosting several visitors. Then one of them said, I'll return to you about this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent, and Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time. Sarah was long past the age of having children, so she laughed silently to herself and said, How can a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old. But the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. And this happened at just the time God said it was. God said it would. 
Time's not against you. Jesus arrived in a new town. A man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, about 12 years old, was dying. And while Jesus is speaking to someone else, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith and she'll be healed. And when they arrived at the house, it was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she'd died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned and she immediately got up. Time's not against you. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year, we'll do business, we'll make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like a fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting and all such boasting is evil. Time is not against you. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Time is not against you. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Time is not against you. We're going to sing together. I'm going to invite Ron and the team up. Um, there's going to be uh, some people available to pray with and for you. Um, I believe Brad and Spencer and, and Katie um, and we may have some others up at the front at the sides here. Um, if you need to receive a prayer, um, if you want to celebrate with somebody, um, if you just want to sit quietly and reflect, please feel free to do that.